0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. On January 15th, a new exhibit opens at the Dubuque Museum of Art. It's called Black Thread. It's a large-scale, immersive exhibit created by Des Moines-based artist Jill Wells. The exhibition traces the routes taken by over 6 million Black Americans during the Great Migration. The Dubuque Museum of Art is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. In a few minutes, I will talk with Wells about how she is using black butterflies to visualize this migration and how it transformed lives and our country, but I'm going to start the hour with a woman whose work is in part Inspiration for this exhibition, Ricky King is a forensic genealogist and historian. She lives in Windsor Heights and is the founder of Roots to Branches Genealogy. She has been involved in a number of projects that are documenting and enriching our understanding of Black history in Iowa, including the Dubuque Black Heritage Survey and the Forever Free Project that rediscovered and documented many of those who participated in the Underground Railroad in Central Iowa. At the opening celebration for Black Thread. There will be an artist conversation between Jill Wells and Ricky King at the MacArthur Center for Nonprofit Learning in Dubuque, followed by a celebration at the museum from 2.30 to 4. And Ricky is with me now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And, And Ricky, when did you first get interested in genealogy?
2: Probably about 20 years ago when I didn't, I was looking at my grandmother's yearbook and couldn't find her in a town that was mostly white. And I'm like, oh, I'll be able to find her easy. She's a black person, there won't be many of them. I couldn't find her because I actually went to her married name, not her maiden name. And she kind of giggled and I'm like, well, what is your maiden name, Grandma? And she's like, King. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's my name. And she goes, yeah, I know. It never elaborated anything that got me piqued my interest going like I got to know more because i was asking about her family.
1: Right. I already have a dozen questions for you based on that. But...
2: Okay. <laughs> so what, No, what did you,
1: what did you find out?
2: <laughs> well, well, I found out she knew nothing about her, her grandparents. She didn't even know their names. So when I first found, which I believed was her and her family on the 1925 Iowa census, which was lucky because they asked for the mother's maiden name. So I said, grandma is this year you and your family? She goes, Your grandparents? He goes, I don't know. I never knew my grandparents' name. And then I was off and running. I'm like, we've got to stop this trend. We've got to know who our ancestors were.
1: Well, there are so many um, pieces to that puzzle that are challenging. and, And I would guess particularly challenging when you are researching the lives of Black Iowans. Tell me what makes that a particular challenge.
2: The challenge is, let people know there really isn't as much of a challenge as people think there is. Okay. You can get past 1870 because people say, oh, because of slavery, you can't get past 1870. Well, first, Iowa had very few blacks here that were slaves. And I say as the people come from Europe, they have to get across the pond, across the ocean. The blacks just have to get past slavery. And what you do that, how you do that is you look at maybe the slave owner, you look at land deeds, in our case in Dubuque, we're actually, I'm actually looking at land deeds because people, they were Blacks were here in 1835. So that's my way of getting past slavery. Marriage records will get you past slavery. And I think it's Virginia. They actually, slaves are recorded 1850, 1851. The state of Virginia made a law that you had to record all births, including slave births. So right there, you're past 1870. Wow. And you have a birth record telling you.
1: Well, when you talk about, uh, you know, your grandmother's name and not knowing the names of her grandparents, of course, that was one of the things that um, slave slavers did to obliterate the identity of the people that they enslaved. They took away their names. And then in the post-slavery years, many of the enslaved people who were then free, then were given the surnames of their enslavers. So when you talk about getting past slavery, I can still imagine that there's a lot of muddy water when it comes to to identifying people by their surnames.
2: Yes, and you're right about they're taking the enslaver's name. Another obstacle is once they were out of um, freedom, free for a while, people would change their last name to so a different last name.
1: Right, which is completely understandable. So,
2: yeah. And one way to get away around it, what guys is, I've actually seen it on that when I did the um, Underground Railroad, the Woodland Cemetery, mm-hmm. recognizing those people, one of the people we recognize actually had a war, Civil War pension, where it states on here, this is a name I used during when I was serving in the Civil War. This is a name I'm using now. So you get by it that way, or maybe the name has been handed down through the generations. Uh, just a name. People don't know why this name is being handed down, but. That could be a connection. So you have to you. There's always a thread of a story that you you tug on that gets you the rest of the way. Like on one record I did, it was my my grandma Rebecca's. The one I didn't know her surname. Her she was raised with a niece whose mother was died young, and that niece knew that Rebecca's mother Ida's last name was Briscoe with an e. You have to have an e. She always said. Well, no one could figure out why, but in the time of doing my research, that little bit of briscoe got me back to her whole family, tied it in. So it's, you never know where you might get the information. It doesn't have to be your direct line you're researching. It might be, instead of my father all the way down from male to male to male, I might have to jump off and go to a sister and then come back to find the records. Or it could be, yes, because like I said, my grandmother didn't know her maiden, her mother's name. Her niece knew of a maiden name, possible maiden name. And I have an aunt that through marriage that has been collecting some of our family history that we didn't even know that she was collecting births and deaths until I start doing this history. So you, you know, it could be someone through marriage. It could be a direct relative. It could be a friend that you're looking for information on that can help tie you to a family surname.
1: Well, Ricky, you yeah. make yourself sound like a detective, and I think in many ways you are a detective. I referred to you as a forensic genealogist. What exactly does that mean to be a forensic genealogist?
2: A detective. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, What I do is, um, like in Texas, there's oil and gas leases, and this is the easiest way to describe it, is someone bought, in Texas, you buy the land above ground and the land below ground. So when I sell the land above ground, I still owe the land below ground. And that's the oil and mineral rights. Well, I bought it in 1900 and my family no longer knows about it. A oil company wants to now drill on that land. They've got to go find out who the descendants are of that person who bought it in 1900, bring it all the way up to the day and then get them to sign over to let them drill or sell sell their mineral rights to them. Wow. And that's or it could be as recent as someone died and they have an error and no one knows how to find that error and I go look for that error.
1: So it's it's much more than than a search for identity and family history. I mean there are some very real world financial implications of having having this kind of information and being able to do that research.
2: Yes. And I actually that's the fun part for me is that detective work, really going out there and finding those fat little bits and nuggets for people. I,
1: I mentioned some of the possible unique challenges to researching Black families in the United States, and you've said it's not as hard as people maybe think it would be, but a big part of this lack of information, the lack of documented history about Black Americans and Black Iowans, is that that history has been ignored and overlooked is that a a challenge for you
2: yes and that's literally what got me into researching black history in Iowa when I started doing genealogy because I went to become a professional genealogist do family history research and I'm like my thought was well I don't want to focus on blacks I am black I'm saying that so people don't get mad The reason I didn't want to focus on Blacks is because there's not a lot of Blacks in Iowa. I'm not going to make a lot of money on that. But what happens, 2020 happens, and I get asked to do presentations on Blacks in Iowa. And my little niche has become researching Blacks in Iowa, something I didn't even think I wanted to do. But it's actually become more fulfilling because on my own, I was doing a project, because I'm nosy, that from 1850 to 1900, I was just researching, there were 333 Blacks on the census that year. So I was gonna research them through the 1900. My presentation, I focused up to 1900. And now I have people like you, like the Duke Museum asking me more about what the Blacks were here in Iowa because we don't know our Black history. We know there's Blacks here. Like I said, I found the 1835 census I never expected to find a Black person owning land in Iowa 1835. I was excited when I found someone owning land in 1846, 27 days before Iowa became a state. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I found someone who owned land here before we were a state. And then you Two went back to Two weeks later, I found 1835.
1: Years. Wow. That's incredible. So in the world of genealogy, are you fairly unique? Are there other Black genealogists who are doing this kind of work?
2: Yes there are. There's a there's there's a lot more than people realize. There's actually an institute called which is like a a training help people train to be genealogists. It's called the Midwest African-American Genealogical Institute and it's helped help any person be able to trace African-American history and that's where I was at when the, the bell went off that I need to learn more about Iowa history because I'm like wait a minute why are everyone always teach me how to do history in the south my family's been in iowa for over 100 years i need to learn how to what they did here in iowa before i could even get them to the south and there's people there's actually a what is it national park services black homesteaders thing that they're doing right now they're trying to um, recognize the black homesteaders that the national park services is doing and i when i first started i went to a National Genealogy Conference, I was shocked at how many Black people I saw there. And there probably was 12, you know, that I saw. There probably was more than that, but I saw 12 when I first saw them. And I'm like, oh, I'm not the only one. This is really weird. And I'm not the youngest one here. And I was in my early 30s at that time. And I thought, well, I'm gonna be really young. And like, there's people younger than me. And you never know who you might connect to. I met a genealogist. I know I'm kind of going off topic here, sorry, that here he came to Des Moines to do some research here and turns out he had family here years later I found out I knew his family one of the people that would start getting in, black person getting into genealogy was talking about this family and I'm like wait a minute I think I know a guy who's already done a ton of research on this town and it turned out to be this guy I just randomly met
1: wow well, that, that sounds like a very Iowa story. Ricky, we're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment, and we'll talk more about your work as a forensic genealogist and preview Black Thread, a new exhibit opening at the Dubuque Museum of Art. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Vehicle donations are
2: a powerful way to fuel the programming you love on IPR. If you've got a clunker or a classic that you've been considering parting ways with, visit ipr.org vehicle to learn more.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up on January 15th, a new exhibit opens at the Dubuque Museum of Art. It's called Black thread. It is a large-scale immersive exhibit created by Des Moines-based artist Jill Wells. The exhibition traces the routes taken by over 6 million Black Americans during the Great Migration. The Dubuque Museum of Art is an underwriter of IPR. And coming up in a few minutes, I will talk with Jill Wells, but right now I'm talking with somebody whose work is part of the inspiration for this new exhibition. Ricky King is a forensic genealogist and historian who lives in Windsor Heights and is the founder of roots to branches, genealogy, and Ricky, just before the break, you were talking about some of the uh, amazing coincidences and connections that you find in researching black Iowans. And that just sounded so Iowa to me because so often, you know, when you start up a conversation with somebody who's not from the state, they say, oh, you live in Iowa. Do you know this person? And it seems like a ridiculous question. But then you do because you went to high school with their cousin or (laughs) something like that. So, I mean, there's an advantage to uh, to living and researching In a relatively small state where I can imagine you find interconnections like that all the time.
2: Yes. And I'm so glad you brought that up because this is how Jill and I actually, we didn't meet because of this. We met because of the presentation and her art exhibit. And I'm like, you know, I'll try. I'm doing my presentations about black migration in Iowa, pioneers. And I was like, you know, let me try to tell, tie Jill's family into this presentation. It'll make it more cohesive. It'll be more fun. So we met and we talked. And I will start doing do a little bit of family history. And it turns out her family's from Centerville, Iowa. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, my family's from Centerville, Iowa. And we got talking to, talk to more. And I said, Simon Estes is from there. My um, 2 times great-grandfather um, Todd at the same church Simon Estes attended, but not when Simon Estes was there. And so we, just, we went on and did some more research. And what do we find is a marriage record of her family. It's Charles Simmons and Pearl Washington. They're her second great-grandparents. And I'm like, oh, their marriage record. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you won't believe this, Jill. But remember I was talking about that pastor, my reverend um, grandparents? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, he's literally the one who married your family. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I'm like, look, it says P.W. Jones. And I said, that sounds for Pleasant Watkins Jones, my second great-grandfather. Oh so, like, wow. so our grandparents knew each other, at least in connection to getting married. In my research, I believe they might have actually worked for a little while as coal miners together. Because, you know, Centerville isn't that big, if you're from Iowa, isn't that big of a town. Right. Again, that con- random connections, like you just mentioned. That's amazing.
1: Well, and, and I can imagine also that segregation probably led black Iowans to have more interactions with each other. Segregation and uh, the fact that, you know, so many people disapproved of intermarrying between people of different races that would have kept these Iowans, these black Iowans, in connection with one another over time. Is that true?
2: Yes. I can give you another example of that if you want one. Sure. Uh, my mother and father, when, when my mother left Centerville when she was eight years old, moved to Muscatine, Iowa, my dad's from Burlington, Iowa, my mom's upstairs neighbor was Pat um, Flagg, I can't think of her maiden last name at the moment, um, but when mom was 12 years old, she said, oh, you, could, you need to meet my nephews, her and her sister, um, Billy, and they went to Burlington and met the nephews, no big deal, six, seven years later, mom's 18 years old, who does she meet? My father. And she finds out later that as they're going through their marriage introductions and people that her upstairs neighbor, Pat, was my dad's Aunt Minnie. The same <laughs> person that, that introduced them when they were 12 years old and they hadn't remembered meeting before. Oh, how
1: funny. That's great. That is a wonderful story. So in. In your work, I mean, you, you're helping people take advantage of rightful inheritance, but you're also helping people discover their identities and to learn about their families. You are bringing Black Iowa history to the surface in so many ways. As you said, Black Iowan landowners date back to 1835, which is extraordinary. And you have been involved in the debut. Black Heritage Survey, which is a project that was designed really to demonstrate that there were Black citizens who were part of Dubuque before 1950? Right. Okay, so tell me, tell me how, I mean, I guess I would assume that there were Black citizens of Dubuque before 1950, but tell me why that was a question.
2: Uh, The city planner, Chris Hape Olson, she came to me and asked me like, well, I'm thinking about doing this project. Is this something that's even possible? And I'm like, yes. And she I moved to Iowa and people are telling me blacks haven't been here since 1950. That's when they first showed up in Dubuque. Like you like, well, no, there's always been blacks in Iowa. They're like black population had dropped so much from statehood to down to about, I think the 12 12 families in 1950s were there. So people didn't realize I have friends that said they never saw a black person in the, the whole time they lived there mm. and they were born and raised there because they stayed in their own little community section. If they went to a Catholic church, they didn't have blacks at the church in this Catholic school, I mean, so they never saw anyone. And, the, you know, it was random that they might see see someone It could be thinking someone passing through town. So that's how it came to be. People didn't think there was a lot of blacks there. And you like, we've got to show these people that there were there was blacks here long before. We've got to get our hist- that history out here. And the project only goes to 1980. And I'm saying that because after 1980, I think it's 1990s where there was a racial incident. It's not we're not covering that, not because we don't want to cover that racial incident that happened. We stopped at 1980 is cuz it's 150 years. Mm from when Dubuque pretty much formed. And the, with the preservation office, you have to have to be at least 50 years old for it might qualify to get on one of those historic preservation databases. So we want to make sure we're gonna be okay on the time frame. So that's why it stops at 1980.
1: So what you're, you're documenting is the lives of black Iowans, black Dubuquers who were such a small portion of the population And a dismissed portion of the population that in many ways they were invisible, but you're making them visible again.
2: Yes. And that's so, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, I'm getting much out of this as everyone else, because I don't know where, I'm not from Dubuque, I'm from Burlington, Iowa, originally. then I moved to Des Moines when I was in my 12, 13 years old. I had only gone to Dubuque once for a quick funeral in and out. And then I went in November and I spent about four or five days there and actually went sightseeing while I was doing some in between doing some research. It's a beautiful town. It's just just got a bad reputation. And with this survey, hopefully it'll improve their reputation. it also improve Iowa's reputation and let people know that's in California, we have blacks in Iowa. We have more than one or two, you know, and hopefully other towns or counties in Iowa start doing a project like this. And I know in, was it Grundy County, there was one black guy there that died in 1929 he had lived there right after slavery. He never married, but when that fa- when he died, or when he got sick, I should say first, I was reading newspaper articles asking about his health. People are checking in on him. When he dies, the town takes up a collection and buys him a headstone. So that's my thing. Iowa, there might be pockets of blacks here or there, but it's a nice town to live in, the state to live in. And you're going to have issues, but you just got to get past those issues. Bring those blacks to the forefront. We need to even bring the Hispanics to the forefront. Yeah. valley junction i'm sorry it's not dubuque has a huge uh, mexican american community we need to bring that kind out and this is what i'm hoping this survey does this exhibit does is like let's bring out those ethnic groups a little bit more that are not just caucasian
1: so it, with with the dubuque project this is the first city in the state of iowa who's undertaken a heritage survey a black heritage survey like this one and they are creating markers for the homes that were inhabited by Black Iowans who lived in Dubuque uh, through historic periods, right?
2: Right. That's one of the goals. Like the 1835 land deed, when I found that, it just says that they bought it's uh, Nathaniel and Charlotte Morgan as the homeowners. And it said they bought lot number one in the city of Dubuque. I'm like, how are we going to figure out what lot number one is? And then the city planners up there, Chris and one of her coworkers, are like, wait a minute, there's a bar call lot number one here. You don't think that bar is literally the lot that we're looking for. Oh, wow. Is it? It, it is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> so I, I can't wait to hopefully we get a plaque outside that bar. And it turns out that area, the, some of the people I'm researching, I'll throw their names out there. It's like Anton, Arthur, Jean, Baptiste, Aaron. They knew each other. And they live close together and work close together. So I'm finding ties of these early blacks. I'm um, showing that they were connected. Like I said, the small pocket that they have connected connections. The Aaron and Arthur, they died within a year of each other, and their estates are suing each other,
1: oh, wow. for
2: money that's old. Oh my goodness! I'm so ta- that shows connections. Yeah, I'm
1: talking to Ricky King, a forensic genealogist and historian who lives in Windsor Heights, and uh, we are talking about how some of her work is part of the inspiration for this new art exhibition called Black Thread, that opens at the Dubuque Museum of Art on January 15th. And Ricky, I want to talk a little bit about the Great Migration because. Um, I will tell you that when I grew up in Iowa and I went to school in Cedar Falls and I learned about the Great Migration, I did not learn about black Americans coming to Iowa, which seems ridiculous. Since Cedar Falls is connected with Waterloo, Iowa, which was one of the destinations during the Great Migration. But this is another part of our Iowa history that just isn't part of the narrative. Iowa gets overlooked. Black history in Iowa gets overlooked. So I think that that's those are two big elements to, to that not being in my history textbook, you know, when I was growing up. But Iowa was a part of the Great Migration, wasn't it?
2: Yes. And I think we started a little earlier than the Great Migration because we had coal miners come in 1880. And that's when a lot of people from Virginia and out east came to Iowa when we think of the great migration the 1930s-ish, mm-hmm. we're thinking Chicago, Detroit, we're thinking like Missouri and Iowans going east and said they were coming west early. And that's, I should not say that's a big majority when the blacks moved Iowa. But it's an but important
1: it's, part of the story. Yes,
2: that's, that's it, yes. And that's, I, Jill and I's family, I, both, of us, both of them were coal miners. And I think they both saw the same newspaper ads or similar newspaper ads that were recruiting blacks to come work, work in the coal mines. And that's how they were ended up in the same area. That's why I think it's the newspapers because they ended up working and living so close together.
1: So, I mean that that was an opportunity for Black Americans to make a living and you know live a more prosperous, more free life. Did a lot of those Black Iowans who came during that time did they stay in Iowa? Did they build lives here?
2: Yes. And that's one of the things I want to prove at some point. As one of my side projects is the show that they stayed and they're still prospering here. My family's still here. Jill's family's still here. Um, a lot of the people who worked in Buxton, Iowa, which was the big black coal mining town that was considered a utopia, their descendants are still here. They've moved to Des Moines. And so a lot of those coal mining people that came that lived in that came for Centerville, Lucas County, once the coal mines start dying out, they went. Some of them went west for different coal mines. Others came up north to Des Moines and lived and worked in Des Moines. So there's a lot of descendants here in Des Moines that their families were former coal miners. I just wish I could get them to want to do their own family history research or want to investigate it.
1: Yeah, well, maybe maybe you are doing that right now. But I mean, Ricky, I, I can imagine that your work has meant so much to many individuals, but I'm curious about you. How has discovering this depth of history and, and being empowered to uncover forgotten history in Iowa, how has that changed the way you think about being a black woman in Iowa? Hmm.
2: Huh. That's actually a really good question. I haven't thought of it that way. One thing is I, I never considered myself a writer. My grandmother was the writer. She was Aldine Davis. She wrote for the Muscatine Journal for years, a column there. So I always thought I wasn't a writer, but as I was doing this research, newspaper research is a huge segment, especially in Iowa that you, you should use because it tells about the community. And I found out my grandmother Aldine's mother wrote for the bystander as well as Aldine as well as a cousin and an aunt. So I'm like, well, maybe I am a writer. It kind of runs in my family. So that made me more, I shouldn't say powerful, but I could see myself as a writer because of that. And then just, I don't know, just getting the information out there. it's my big thing as powerman. is I wanna get the information out there to blacks that they can research their history. We have strong history in Iowa and let's, let's get it out there and get it told. That's that's my po- my power from this. <laughs> right.
1: Well, and you've also been working to empower the next generation of genealogists and researchers with your forever free uh, program that you worked on that was documenting many of those who participated in the Underground Railroad in central Iowa. You mentored both a, what, a high school student and a college student in in working to research 22 people who were possibly buried at Woodland Cemetery in Des Moines.
2: Yes. And I must say, they were not black. They happened to be white people that did it. Um, and I was, I never heard about it. I happened to contact Barry, who was Jurgensen, who was in charge of it, to do research on a black person for a different migration project, because he had some documents. And he said, hey, would you be willing to mentor someone? I'm like, I've never mentored anyone. I don't know if I can do that. And he's like, oh, it's not that hard. I'll help you. But I'm like, well, I'll give it a chance. And if I can't do it, then I'll just back out. It was one of the most fascinating things I did, and I'm glad I did it. Because, again, when you go outside your comfort zone, you learn so much more. I didn't realize there was that many people buried at Woodland Cemetery that had ties to the Underground Railroad. And it's not just the the formerly enslaved. It was the conductors. It was people who hired the, the runaway slaves to make sure they helped them stay free and got them to different places. It's like the Jordan House, Grinnell. Out of Grinnell College, I can't think of his first name. And there was, um, there's a talking about family connections. One of the runaway slaves, I traced them. That's families buried at Woodlawn Cemetery. I was able to trace them to living descendants today. I'm not going to name them because they didn't really want to be involved as much. But at least I was able to find someone who was buried there, living descendants that was black. I also was able to find there was a conductor. I can't say her name, Delilah or Deila Webster. Was D E L-I-A. She was a petticoat conductor. So she rested as a freedom conductor. So she was a woman that helped slaves run away. And she died here in Des Moines, but she didn't do her business here. But she's buried at that cemetery. Wow. I found living descendants of her. And that was really fascinating because they actually knew about her. I shouldn't say descendants because she had no kids, but cousins.
1: Relatives, right.
2: And so you never know who you're going to find. I, As part of this project, we also did Newton Cemetery. And they said, we're going to do the fabulous five people. Well, I knew the descendant, one of my former co-workers, a lady I said mentioned earlier about, she wanted to do her family research. And I said, wait a minute, a guy's already done this, some of this. Her family is one of the families they are going to start researching in Newton. So it's connections everywhere. I always say you can't walk somewhere in Des Moines without knowing someone. (laughs)
1: I think that's 100% true. Ricky, it's so exciting. And I hope you'll come back again in the future and tell us about some of the things that you are discovering, because it sounds like you have so much more to uncover.
2: Yes, I would love to come back. And I love to talk about Iowa history and black history
1: ricky king is a forensic genealogist and historian she lives in windsor heights and is founder of roots to branches genealogy she is part of the opening celebration for black thread a new exhibit at the dubuque museum of art on january 15th at one30 she'll be in conversation with artist jill wells talking about black history in iowa following that 2 30 to 4 there's the opening celebration for Black Thread in the lobby of the Dubuque Museum of Art. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Powered by Iowans and empowered to tell Iowa's story. IPR is where news, music, and culture meet. Thank you for listening and supporting your local NPR network station.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In the lobby of the Dubuque Museum of Art, over 4,000 black butterflies move over and across the walls, moving into white spaces. It's a visualization of the Great Migration. The exhibition is called Black Thread, and it's created by artist, mentor, and activist Jill Wells, and it opens with a public (laughs) celebration on January 15th from 1 to 4 p.m. The Dubuque Museum of Art is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio, and Jill is with us. With me now. Hello, Jill. Hello, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And I would love to hear about your inspiration for this exhibit.
0: Absolutely. Black Thread presents the journey and the geography of one of the largest movements of people in United States history and really reconsiders this historic phenomenon known as the Great Migration, which in itself that is the primary inspiration. Of this exhibition. So So the Great Migration, looking at 1910 between 1970, when over 6 million African Americans from the South migrated to industrial cities of the Northeast, Midwest, and the West. That's the thing right there, the primary.
1: So those 4,000 black butterflies Mm -hmm. symbolize the 6 million black Americans who moved. It's a
0: very immersive experience. And so when I was thinking about how to have those conversations, and looking at this educational component of the movement of those individuals from the south to the north, the walls of the museum become the spaces for those sections of the map to be um, kind of broken down. And so those butterflies move across those certain segments from the south to the north. So each wall kind of takes you along that journey. As an immersive experience.
1: And speaking of immersive experience, I know that accessibility, making sure that your art can be interacted with with all the senses is a really important part of your work and that's something you've brought to this exhibit as well. Tell me how you've done that. So the
0: immersive experience is one that's visual, it's audible, and then it's tactile. So The map itself is laid out, again, across all those walls through the movement of the black butterflies, and then the Iowa Department for the Blind created a tactile rendition of that mural, the the U.S. map, um, moving along um, those patterns, and then there are QR codes, so you can listen along to audio descriptions um, by themselves, or you can listen along as you're actually moving through this space. And then there are elements of the exhibition that you can gently touch. So the floor level pieces, one being a 1958 uh, Kenmore sewing machine. There's a combination of the African-American flag and the black and white American flag, which have been woven and threaded together um, with butterflies as well. So you can gently touch and interact with those and then with some of the butterflies that move along the wall. So you have a full sensory experience that I feel like hopefully makes it more immersive and um, accessible to as many people as possible.
1: I know that a, a large part of the impulse to create that accessibility is so that, that it's accessible for people who have some many of many different kinds of disabilities to make it so everyone, of every of every, ability level can interact, but it also sounds like it just makes it a much more immersive and full experience for any individual who's interacting with the exhibit. Do you feel that way?
0: I do feel that way, and it was very intentional, so I hope that uh, individuals have that experience when they attend the exhibition.
1: If I touch one of the black butterflies, what do I feel? There
0: is... I would say probably a different sense for everyone or a different experience. They're made of flexible plastic. They're quite thin. Uh, There's three different sizes, and they're rather smooth. And there's also, for um, the visual component, there's a reflective quality on the surface of them. But the the kind of edge is, is rather kind of hard or rigid. And so I think that they lend themselves to a lot of the conversations that are infused with the exhibition, like Black Thread is designed to raise questions about freedom, about family stories, knowledge of self, transformation. And then there's a component that goes into the larger conversation behind this movement of 6 million people. When we're looking at labor and U.S. economy, that's where the sewing machine comes into play. And so even if you're not able to physically be in that space, there through the QR code is a beautiful experience that is one you can listen to as well. And so I, um, IRIS Iowa reading services provided that for the experience.
1: Oh, wow. And you mentioned that sewing machine. That's also part of your family story too, right? Yes. The sewing machine belonged to my maternal grandmother
0: And she's someone who's always inspired my art, and that is on, of course, my family being a biracial family. There's individuals in my family who were slavers, and then there were individuals that were um, enslaved. And so there's a conversation that's taking place within the entire dynamic of the exhibition that
1: looks at that. Wow. Wow. Not very long ago, you completed an incredibly beautiful mural at XBK in Des Moines uh, of the Harlem Renaissance. And I get the sense that that working on this exhibit and doing research about the Harlem Renaissance, which is also a part of that great migration story and all of those individuals that, that made their way to Manhattan and the amazing things that happened in Harlem... Do these pieces connect in your mind? Absolutely.
0: That's really one of the primary places when I was researching that mural and looking at the Harlem Renaissance that piqued my interest into the deeper story of the Great Migration, like what led to this site. And so I started to dig back. And when I did that, I think in order to fully understand that kind of push and pull, pull factor of the Great Migration, looking at the American Civil War and then World War I, allows for um, a lot of questions to be answered. And that push factor for that exodus of people where these poor economic conditions in the South really exacerbated the limitations of individuals at that time that were really looking to change their situations. And then that kind of pull factor and looking at... These, I would say, opportunities in the North where in large part there were individuals from the North that were going to the South and literally recruiting um, formerly enslaved African Americans to come work in the North. So it was kind of interesting in that research when I was looking at there still is this exploitation of black bodies Um, taking place even though they're offering a potential better economic situation in the North. So I tried to integrate some of those conversations as well into the exhibition.
1: I think about that sewing machine and I think about how, you know, individuals, but also families were drawn north and many of the men were drawn to the railroad lines and factories and industrial jobs. But the women were doing a lot of domestic jobs. They were taking care of people's homes. They were sewing clothes. So that feels like such a powerful symbol.
0: It's one that I think is a very true read because that's what I had thought of in many parts of the creation of the work. And so when you think about researching um, men within the migration versus researching women in the migration, looking at um, how easy that was for me or how difficult that was for me, um, because of the economy, because of some of the records that were connected to what someone's occupation was that's in large part connected to their gender. Um, that was something I was trying to nod towards in looking at pulling that sewing machine into the center of the exhibition. It's literally centered in this space. It's one of the very first things that you will see when you walk into the museum. And I think that that read is very accurate and correct. So hopefully those conversations come up where this acknowledgement of African-American women throughout history can become a center part of that conversation. And that's not to dismiss, you know, um, all genders and inclusivity with that. I think it's just starting to learn a little bit more about those individuals in that history that has in large part just been kind of obliterated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Talking to Ricky King a few minutes ago, that was one of the things we were talking about is how so many of the stories about black Iowans are invisible, overlooked, forgotten, or just untold. And she also talked about how difficult it is to find information about women with the changing names as they take their husbands' names or um, you know, other other things happen in life. She also talked a little bit about doing some genealogical research about your family, discovering a unique family connection between her family and your family. But how did that deepen this experience for you, Jill, to, to find out new information about your family's history in Iowa? Mm-hmm. It was um, rather complex. Our ancestral
0: ties um, really overlapped very quickly, quickly. <clears throat> We'd been sitting together for probably about an hour and a half uh, going through um, marriage certificates on my father's side, um, looking at um, death certificates, birth certificates. And so I walked away knowing immediately that my great-great-grandfather on the Simmons side of my family, which is my father's side, um, had been married to his wife by her great-great-grandfather. So I walked away knowing that immediately and was blown away. We both kind of had a very emotional moment when we found that out. But I also walked away with a set of documents, you know, sitting in my inbox for a pretty long period of time. And I kept working on other parts of the exhibition and was almost like, there's a sense of trepidation in opening that. And finally like opening Pandora's box, what am I going to find out, you know, and how is that going to feel? And and am I ready to experience that? And I had a really wonderful time when I finally felt brave enough to open that inbox and look at my father's side of the family. And then kind of having these visual pictures of like them coming from Virginia or Missouri or moving from Iowa to Minnesota and where were they working and what were they doing? And just having a greater sense of self. And that really opened up again when I started the installation at the museum. So I had hopes that these conversations would kind of be pulled out of other individuals as they're experiencing this and talking about their family. And maybe they know someone else that they had never in known of before. And so I feel like that's already starting to happen with this exhibition. And so it's opening on the 15th and I'm super curious to see what's going to happen with all these individuals from Dubuque and Des Moines um, and anywhere else, again, kind of move to this space
1: and start to talk about that. Yeah. Wow. That gives me goosebumps to think about, Jill. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think the Great Migration, I am a member of Generation X and me too (laughs) Oh, nice (laughs) anyway so when when i was in school and i learned about the great migration i i think it was you know like a paragraph in my history book um that basically said that six million black americans moved from the south to the north and they went to chicago and they went to detroit and they went to new york um and i didn't i really didn't understand at all that iowa was a part of the great migration and i i know that this exhibit isn't just about iowa But learning that later, and I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, which is right next to Waterloo, Iowa, which was a destination for many in the Great Migration because of the jobs uh, affiliated with the rail line and and other industries there. It's so much more powerful to understand that we're all a part of it. And it makes me sad that that wasn't something that I learned when I was growing up and I was I was in that environment. But it's exciting to have an opportunity like this to really understand it. And it sounds like to understand it in such a visceral way. What do you think, what do you hope people experience when they immerse themselves in this installation?
0: I think that's a beautiful question. So thank you for asking that. And I would say a primary hope is a sense of one's life being very important because from my experience when i don't have that part of my history then there seems to be and i think historically this can be very um, much tied into the history of african americans where it's like if you erase a, a person if you don't acknowledge a person if you erase a history one it can be hard to make corrections towards future actions if you don't know a wrong that was done in the past. So, as it's, it's difficult as it is sometimes to look at these very uncomfortable truths of our history in America, knowing them can allow us to make corrections on how we treat people and how we respect people through the acknowledgement of I am a person and these other people around me are very important. And I'm just a firm believer, also, that our ancestors have a way of communicating with us. And I had an experience that felt very like poetic for me. Like at one of the days where we were installing, the sun was setting, the light in the museum had started to change, and you see all these um, for individuals who are living with sight. There is an experience and. I would love to convey this for individuals who are living with different levels of sight and pain or there's this shadow and these different shadows that are present on the wall. So there's this physical thing that you can touch this butterfly, but then it leaves this kind of like residue through the shadow on the wall. And it felt very much like the
1: past being present yeah. through that shadow. I, and so, yeah. <laughs> I'm also just struck by the, I haven't been in this space, but just seeing photographs, the incredible beauty of this and, and, and how beautiful that is that you see the beauty in this transformation of our country that, of course, as has made us who we are today. And Jill, we are out of time, but I am so excited about this exhibit, and I'm so grateful for your time.
0: Thank you very much for your time as well and this opportunity to share about this exhibition. So it opens on the 15th and it will close Um, the 15th of uh, January, and it will close
1: on the 12th of February. Jill Wells is an artist, mentor, and activist. You can find more about her and her work at jillwellsart.com. You can find out more about Black Thread at dbqart.org. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.